All right, everyone. We are here in person with Nadia Vander Hayden. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you. We are at Wonderland or we were at Wonderland Miami the last two days. No one slept. <laughs> Our voices are gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we're here bringing you back a new episode of uh, the podcast of the year, according to the award <laughs> that this program was given, somewhat surprisingly. Um, anyway, how, what did you think of the conference? Well, I mean, first, congratulations yeah, you. on your award. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, no, it's good. Yes, my voice is shot. There's yep. a, a lot of talking, uh-huh. um, a lot of networking, a lot of meeting and connecting with people in person. Um, so, you know, we can sleep tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it, the conference was incredible. Um, particularly for me, I mean, I'm new, I guess you can say into the business world. I worked, um, my job before, like I just didn't go to conferences. It wasn't part of my career. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, this is, it was a whole new world. So it was pretty, it was pretty exciting. Did you feel like there was, uh, like a lot of hype going on it was like the hype level did the hype level meet your expectations of like how much hype there was in the industry? Cause we've been running this whole industry basically started like in many ways, almost like during COVID, right? Totally. And so like very little in-person interaction has happened between anyone from any of these companies mm-hmm. over the last two years. And so um, a lot of like hype on the internet and um, I don't know, it felt pretty hypey to me. Like people seemed excited to like get out of their like little quarantine shells. And um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was it, intense. <laughs> it was, you know, it was just, I think it changes the game a bit. Like I have, I've, there's some, groups and customers and uh, investors that I've probably spoken to 10 plus times by Zoom. Yeah. And it's like a, just a whole deeper um, relationship you can build when it's, you're in person, when you're like looking someone in the eye and. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I mean, I had comments, you know, oh, you're taller than I thought you, you know. I have had exact, things, every right? single person so said that to me. Just, They're like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I you, didn't yeah. realize you were not short. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. It was, um, yes. And it was, it was really nice to just like shake hands, hug people, you know, uh, obviously the COVID protocols at the venue were very strict. Everyone had testing and so on. So we were a little more open maybe about shaking hands and hugging, but it was, um, yeah, it was just a really, really nice opportunity to, um, see the energy in person and feel the energy in person. Did you watch any of the talks? I, I did watch a few. Um, I was, I was in a lot of meetings. Yeah, same. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like the kind of magic happened for me personally was awesome. outside, outside yeah. of the talks. I think the talks are great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we've also been able to watch a lot of these similar talks, um, you know, on the virtual conferences in the past. For sure. Um, but I've, I, you know, I heard there was some really great content and some really great discussions. And I think it's an opportunity for people who maybe haven't seen the, the virtual conferences to, yeah. to see things in person. But and, no standout talks to you. I mean, I really, yeah. I really enjoyed Daniel Carcillo and, and Mike Tyson. He's mm. actually, he was actually really funny. Um, so I don't know. I, um, uh, I didn't, honestly, I'll just be totally transparent. I didn't actually see many of them. Yeah, me neither. No, Um, I basically (laughs) went to the one that I participated in and that was it. Like Mm -hmm. you mostly meeting people. Um, what was any memorable lines from Mike Tyson's? I was backstage while he was doing his thing. So I saw him come off stage, but I did not get to watch. I think he said something along the lines of like, like something like I just, obsessed with psychedelics or some sort of like really enthusiastic response to these drugs. Um, I mean, clearly they benefited him, you know, someone who clearly was either a very destructive person to himself and to people around him has now healed. And so, you know, healed or in the process of healing, it's a continual process. You're right. It never ends. So just doing the healing work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think it's a, it's a pretty incredible thing. Yeah. Um, on my panel, one of the things that I mentioned was that I <clears throat> like looking at companies where the founders have sort of been involved in sort of the psychedelics industry, or the psychedelics movement for a long time, and that I'm seeing a lot of companies that are popping up, jumping on the hype train, starting, um, you know, trying to get involved. And like none of these people have been involved in the industry, much less probably like ever done psychedelics in their lives. Mm-hmm. But uh, SciGen, the company that you work for, is like rooted in the the industry and the movement for like a long time. And I kind of want to like start by talking about 
like obviously a little bit about Saigen, but also about sort of like your dad and his past and how all of that sort of like ties into, you know, what the company is doing now. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you could just like give a very quick overview of like what Saigen is for people who don't yeah. know, and then we could get into the other stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, Saigen is a psychedelic manufacturing company. Um, we do purely synthetic materials. Um, we have a large facility that we're completing construction should be done in the next two months or so, uh, in Calgary, Alberta. It's a 17,000 square foot dedicated to psychedelic facility. Um, we have a 6,000 square foot modular clean lab and a 3,000 square foot R and D lab. Um, we have a team of, I believe 12 chemists, um, and we are, um, basically producing, we're focusing on eight substances right now. So the psychedelic bulk API, um, and that's, uh, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, DMT, 5-MeO, DMT, 2-CB, Ibogaine, and mescaline. And so those, um, materials, basically we offer, um, uh, once we're licensed by Health Canada, um, which will come at the completion, well, we intend to have it completed in January. Um, and once we're licensed, we'll be licensed under Health Canada to manufacture and distribute those materials to um, customers in the space. Um, so mostly drug development companies, um, academic researchers, nonprofits that are working in compassionate use or special access programs. Um, and so, you know, for the past year, I've had a really amazing opportunity. I'm just coming up to almost, you know, next spring will be two years with SciGen for me. Mm. Um, but I've had a really great opportunity to just meet everyone in the space to hear about what they're doing because there was just, I mean, how SciGen began is there was a recognition that there's a, 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 a bottleneck or a, a need for this material, this GMP high quality um, material for researchers. So um, in my dad, Peter Vander Hayden, is one of the founders, um, and he started this company with um, Danny Matika, who's our CEO. And uh, I, I originally came on, kind of helped my dad more like an executive assistant role, um, and uh, just kind of fell into this sales role. So now I'm the director of sales and marketing. And uh, I just, yeah, I just really like being able to sell drugs. Being a drug dealer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, once we're licensed, I can say I'm a legal drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the yeah, that's basically what um, our goals are. And, and it's interesting. So yes, the history, I guess you kind of want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, so my dad uh, is, it's an interesting way that we approach this. Like he, how do you, I guess he calls it the elephant in the room that no one talks about in this space is that all of this came from the underground. Yep. All of it, everyone who's done these drugs up to today, they're still illegal. Yeah. They're still controlled substances. So you are obtaining them from someone who's put their life on the line. Um, their you know, family, potentially they could be imprisoned. Many mm -hmm. have been imprisoned, including my father, um, to bring these, what they feel are medicines to the world in a time when the regulators weren't ready for it. So, um, you know, back in the mid nineties, my father was, um, uh, busted for, um, having an LSD lab. He worked, um, very closely with Nick Sand. Um, and so I kind of, um, at about 13 years old, had a front row seat to kind of the destruction of the drug, what happens in the drug war. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these are nonviolent people, mm -hmm. um, not causing harm to anyone. Cause we know Typically, these drugs don't cause harm. Um, they're not organized crime. They weren't hurting anyone. And, and so, you know, they're in, they were in prison for this. And um, so I spent my, you know, my teenage years kind of without a father around because he was in jail. And so, you know, that's a, uh, it's a reminder, you know, of the consequences of the drug war and, and why it, I guess I can say like this whole process of helping my dad build this company and have this family kind of fam family legacy is it's been really cathartic. It's a healing process because 20 years ago he was punished for this and now he's finally being celebrated for it. So <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, um, like you said, <clears throat> he's in some ways, you know, one of the lucky ones, there are many people who went to prison and they're not, they're, they're maybe still, in, they're maybe still in prison and they're not able to participate in like the, the legal version of the thing that they, you know, went to jail for. Right. And like you said, this thing is like being built on the backs of like people who put their life on the line. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And um, it's one of the things that I was talking about in my panel uh, on Monday was that so many of these psychedelic companies are focused on like mental health, right? Like using psychedelics to treat mental health. It's like the big, the big headline. Um, and many of, especially these like newer, more corporate CEOs, they're like afraid to speak publicly up in favor of like decriminalization or, you know, mm -hmm. some kind of legalization. Um, and it's really funny to me because they're on the one hand, they're talking about mental health, but like, what about the mental health of like the kids whose dad went to jail for like, mm -hmm. you know, selling LSD or possessing. So it's kind mm -hmm. of, it, it seems very contradictory. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean it, well, it's, I mean, we could dive into this, the whole drug war and the destruction it's had. It's not just psychedelics that have, you know, this, this war that has been lost, um, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of um, people, particularly, you know, people of color and indigenous are being punished to this day for drugs that we can buy in stores now. And yeah. they're still in prison for stuff like that. So it's, it's, I mean, I can only focus on what I know, which is more the psychedelic industry and how it affected myself personally. But it's, um, yeah, it is interesting that the the discussion of legalization and decriminalization and and I don't know I feel like it's kind of like you don't necessarily have to have a stance on it yeah I mean you can if you want but um, I think the ultimate goal here is if if the pathway to help people the fastest is medicalization for now mm -hmm. and that just it's what is it I I almost feel like we're trying to just build trust with the regulators sure. and the government to understand so they can see finally. I mean, they know, they know this stuff is safe. Yeah. It's just, they have to go through, it has to go through the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so if that's the fastest way we can get there, um, then, you know, we'll do what we can to-, to Oh yeah, I'm not against the medicalization. I just think no, that they no. can coexist. Like you can have medicalization and also not put people in jail. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Like no, I'm, things, I'm right? no, trust me. I know yeah. my stance. <laughs> my stance is like, just legalize all of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know. <laughs> so when you were uh, a kid, did you know what your dad was up to? I didn't. You didn't? So no. you found out when he got- Yeah, I found out- um, Oh, it's, it's actually a very vivid memory, which is funny because I'm like, um, I guess I just, I don't know. My sister's the one who seems to remember a lot of stuff in detail from her childhood. But the, um, I remember there was a lunar eclipse that night. Um, and my sister, I believe, I feel like it was in the summer. It might've been in the spring. I could be totally wrong about that too. <laughs> I have to ask my dad. Um, and he was coming to pick us up to go see this lunar eclipse um, kind of on a hill mountain where there was a good view. And my dad was an extremely reliable father. He didn't just not show up um, and he didn't show up. And so, you know, um, basically, yeah, he'd been, he'd been arrested and, and I found out um, the next day and it was unfortunately in all the newspapers and it was, uh, it's hard for kids um, because, you know, your friends, families now know about this and mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, it's, the nineties was maybe a little different. They didn't have, you know, I guess it wasn't social media, but the front page of the newspapers and, um, but you know, it's my understanding, you know, he served his time and then he carried on to do, um, you know, work in, uh, the biotech field and, and, um, he just, yeah, he served his time and, and, and I believe he's received a pardon and, and now we're moving on. So, but for what, for what came from that is that he has, you know, extensive experience creating these molecules. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. So your, your dad goes to prison and you, at, at what point do you, you said you were 13 when it happened, right? Mm -hmm. So I assume you weren't doing psychedelics before that. No, right? so, I wasn't. so at what point, at what point do you then like try this stuff? You know, I think I, well, I don't know what is the typical timeline for a teenager to start yeah. experimenting with things. Um, I actually probably think it was getting closer to 16 or 17 when I actually tried psychedelics. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was the pot smoking and whatever right. um, when you're a little younger, but I, you know, I rode horses and was really athletic and kind of had a lot of focus in that. So this certainly, I just want to like talking about this. It wasn't like I was doing this yeah, every of weekend. Course, of course. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I had an, a unique way of, being raised despite not being aware of it, my, you know, I feel like my parents' parenting style was very um, harm reduct redu reductive, that's yeah. a word. Um, the way that they, uh, they didn't fall into the say no to drugs realm. Um, mm -hmm. 
I would imagine they wouldn't. No. (laughs) And just to like, you know, be smart, be safe, um, know your source, know what you're doing. Like, I think that was just kind of subconsciously, I don't even remember having a specific talk with them about it. I think it was just the unspoken rule in our family to just be responsible with yourself and your actions. Um, and so I'd say, you know, I, um, it's interesting because, uh, after I learned about it and I kind of learned more about psychedelics and the, that, you know, it should be intentional and it's a journey and you're learning something. And then I proceeded to completely rebel and use it to just party. Right. Yeah. So, um, which, you know, teenager, young adult, uh-huh. we push the boundaries. Um, and so I had some pretty, uh, unintentional, well, not unintentional. I intentionally took the drug, but there was no intention behind it. It was yeah. just to really have fun, um, and basically get fucked up. So, right. um, and so, you know, and then I kind of lost interest in them, to be honest. I, I went to university. Um, I was, um, really dedicated to becoming a paramedic. Um, and I, you know, I started working quite young as a paramedic and, and focused on that, um, for a large, basically up until recently, um, it wasn't a huge part of my life. So when, when you were doing psychedelics those first times, your dad was still in prison, right? Um, or maybe I don't think so at that oh. time. Um, but like, I certainly rebelled in the sense that like, I wouldn't, I didn't want to talk about it with them. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to like, I'm going to do this on my own of and course. I'm going to get it yeah. where I want it from. And like, it was like, a, you know, th- yeah. yeah. But did the fact <clears throat> that he had, you know, had that happen to him because of the same drugs that you were taking, like, was that weird for you? Did you, did that even cross your mind in any way? Did it, it like make you extra nervous about I, doing it? I or? think I just didn't think that much as a teenage girl. <laughs> didn't think girl. that much? Okay. <laughs> I think, I don't think I thought about it that much to be okay. honest. Um, you know, this was the late nineties when I was a teenager, yeah. you know, 96 to 2000 is when I was a teen or, uh, in high school. And so, you know, the rave scene was pretty big then. Um, and so that was kind of my intention was to rave, mm-hmm. um, and underground parties and DJs. And there was, there was certainly no, uh, journeying happening. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure. Yeah. And so, um, paramedic, um, what was that like? Um, well, I, you know, my mom, interestingly enough, she was always, she always pushed me to like get my lifeguarding certificate. So mm. I worked as a oceanfront lifeguard in my hometown and, um, I started doing like volunteer ski patrolling and I just really loved the first aid. Like it was very simple at that level. And I just wanted to be a paramedic. So I went to, I moved to Alberta and I, um, got, uh, my EMT and then my advanced life support paramedic certificate. And then I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, moved back to, um, BC and, um, worked, you know, worked as a paramedic up until, uh, well, basically full time up until about a year ago where I dropped into kind of a part-time position. Yeah. Um, but you know, five years ago, uh, six years ago, five or six years ago, I, um, completed my critical care flight paramedic training. So we work out of uh, fixed wing and rotor wing. Um, yeah, so I just really wanted to, you know, I certainly just like having a lot of ambition and always working towards something, so. Yeah, when when you were doing um, paramedic work, did you ever deal with people who were like having an intense mental health crisis that had to be like taken in somewhere or was that not something that ever really came up? Oh, no. Mental health crisis is a huge part of what paramedics do. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we do have a fair, although when I first started back in like 2002 or 2003, um, we did not have the mental health training or crisis intervention that we get now as mm. paramedics. They are, there's in the last, certainly in the last five to 10 years, there's been a lot more focus in training us um, as frontline workers to deal, you know, with crisis intervention, nonviolent um what's the word crisis intervention, I guess you could say, <clears throat> and just how to, um, you know, there was a time when, you know, we would, you you'd tie people uh, face down on stretchers and, you know, like there's, you yeah. know, things that, you know, it's a learning process, right? You uh-huh. learn that like, just cause someone's having a mental health crisis and, and, and in trouble, um, the way that we manage them on the street has definitely evolved. I think it's a lot more um, peaceful and kind. And, and so, <laughs> It's good, but we're there when it's it's just peaked, right? It's at its yeah. worst, and nine one one's been called. So when you see that stuff, does it 
do you get the sense that like, oh, maybe psychedelic therapy or something could have prevented this person from getting to this point where the paramedics are called? Or are these cases like so extreme that no, no amount of ketamine therapy or something <laughs> yeah. could help? Um, no, I certainly think there is a, certainly something to be said. I mean, how do you get to that crisis point? Yeah. It's not over, it's not, sometimes it maybe can be triggered depending on your mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but it's usually a gradual decline into something, yeah. decline into crisis, there's signs. And so it's, um, how do you stop that in its tracks and, and turn it back around to a place of, um, you know, health and wellness and yeah. yeah. Do you think, um, like what kinds of crises are these? Are these people that are suicidal? Are they like, what is sort of the yeah, variety? So you see, yeah, suicide. Um, well, you see anything from suicidal, just from people who are lonely and just can't sleep. Mm -hmm. People call um, for everything, I'm sure you can imagine. And we always respond in Canada. So, you know, um, sometimes it's just sitting with people and talking to them and they just want someone to listen. Mm. Um, and a lot of people, um, like I say, mental health care in Canada is getting better, but there's a lot of people who slip through the cracks and part of their distress is the fact that they know they've slept through the, slipped through the cracks and they're not getting the support they need when they need it. And they just escalate, escalate, escalate until they're now, um, have, potentially police officers and paramedics in their home helping them. So, um, but then there's, you know, there's, then there's the worst case scenario where, where unfortunately we get there after, after they've committed suicide. So. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting. Like you talk about people that have slipped through the cracks and I sometimes mm -hmm. feel like, you know, psychedelics are a catalyst for change, but mm -hmm. they're not really like the change itself, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, if you're not in like a position, whether financially or like um, with a friend group or a support network around you to actually make the changes that the psychedelics can catalyze, you might not actually like get that much better. Does that make sense? And so mm -hmm. I, I sometimes wonder if like the, um, all the talk around psychedelics for mental health like applies to people that, you know, kind of have it together enough to be able to make those changes. But for the mm -hmm. people that have already slipped through the cracks, yeah. I wonder if it can, if it actually is helpful. Well, I mean, you mean, is it helpful for the people? I mean, we have to yeah. remember that there's like, it's, well, I know in addiction, they call it a family disease and mm. we're talking more and more about in, you know, generational trauma now and how it's, um, you can get well, but sometimes the people around you stay unwell yeah, and they, and they expect you, you into, to stay unwell because that's right. what defines your relationship <laughs> is they are taking care of you being unwell. And when you're suddenly well again, they don't see their role and it can either turn into something destructive. So I guess the hope would be that you, you know, when you're getting better, the people recognize that and support yeah. you and allow you to um, interact with them in a different way. So, you know, I think, gosh, I mean, that's why you kind of say psychedelics could be for everyone. It could help the person who's suffering and it can help the family potentially who's watched the suffering. Yeah, you would hope. So. And so um, the other side of that is you're talking about like showing up after a person has already committed suicide. Mm -hmm. That's got to be stressful for you and the other people that show up. I've seen that there are actually some trials around, um, I think, MDMA for first responder trauma, I guess they call it. Mm -hmm. um, do you know anything about that? Do people that you work with, um, are they like excited about that? Um, mm -hmm. How real is like first responder trauma? Oh, it's it's very, it's very real. Yeah. Um, so we, I mean, it's PTSD. If you're, you know, diagnosed, um, we have a kind of different levels or something we also describe as an occupational stress injury, mm -hmm. which may not be full-blown PTSD symptoms. Um, it may mean just a temporary situation where you're unable to work um, and you need to take some time off. So um, I've had an occupational stress injury where I've had to take time off um, and it's a lot more acceptable now to ask for help. We have a lot more support um, from, you know, workers' compensation board and our employers. Um, like I said, I mean, I started in the early 2000s. I'm sure there's the old guys that I work with that even remember it worse, but it started with, you just didn't talk about it. Of course. And so, you know, you, you did these calls, let's say a suicide, a tragic suicide, and you just told a mother that her son is dead or his, or their daughter's dead. And, 
um, you just sat in that grief with them and then you go out to your ambulance and dispatch is like, okay, off you go to the next one. No, that was it. That's how it went. And so now we have entire support networks and teams of peers that are trained in critical incident stress management in supporting us with this. Um, but the, the, the big dark thing is that um, suicide rates are extremely high among first responders, mm. among police and firefighters and paramedics. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, uh, it, it just keeps happening. Yeah. I just keep hearing about it. And so you'd say that this is widespread. It's kind of like if you spend enough time as a first responder, eventually you will probably. It's not a given. Okay. So everyone has a different level of resilience in this job. Right. But it's, I think it's not a matter of if it is a matter of when of something, you may need something to take some time off. It's just, and it may not even be something from, you know, everyone assumes it's necessarily about the patient or something that we see. It could be something that, um, you know, that just triggers you. It's your own personal issues or your cut. Like everyone has to remember that when we go to work as paramedics, we also have families and lives and stress and drama and, you know, things happen in our personal lives that we then have a cup that's already full and then we go to work and it just, it's just overflows it. Right. So, um, I think the, the, the support network is better. I think there are a lot of paramedics that are um, interested in this. I've seen some panel discussions with first yeah. responders. Um, I know there's a lot of um, interest from military veterans and um, <clears throat> we're, um, we're dying. And so we need this. <laughs> yeah. Paramedics, so are, paramedics and police and firefighters and military are dying at huge numbers too young. Mm-hmm. So and SciGen is creating the molecules that can potentially help. So let's talk about that a little yeah. bit more. Get out of um, the dark yeah, here. Yeah, get, get out of the, the pit. <laughs> um, so SciGen is started 2019? Um, yeah, I think 2018, like it started as an idea. And I mean, Danny and Peter share this story, but basically Danny wanted to do this. Um, and who is Danny? Danny? Yeah. Oh, like Danny's what's his just story, the best. sort of. Um, well, I mean, Danny, Danny Matika is our CEO. Um, he has a uh, degree in chemistry. He had a deep interest in psychedelics from a very young age. Well, not young age, but um, to help with himself and his story. And I obviously won't share his story. It's his to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's always had an interest in this. So um, he, re- I think he basically started... Um, thinking about doing manufacturing and was talking to people in the space at the same time that my dad was thinking of starting a manufacturing company and they were connected and they said, well, sounds like we're pretty aligned. Why are we going to do two separate ones? We should just work together. Mm-hmm. And so SciGen was created from that. And at that time, this is you know two years ago or something, how much demand was there for these compounds? Was there, I well, mean, because there were barely any companies doing real research on this stuff, right? Like who, who was sort of, was, was there this vision that over the next 18 to 24 months, this was going to blow up and we need to get out in front of it? Or was it just like, oh, maybe we should, we could supply some stuff to research labs. Like, mm-hmm. do you kind of know? Well, I, and I may get the dates wrong. I believe there was a psychedelic conference or a MAPS conference in 2017 or 2018, um, that my dad attended and he was talking to researchers mm. and that's what they were talking about is that they can't find reliable supply chain solutions for their, the API to do these studies. Mm. Um, and it's actually very difficult. There's not many groups in the space that either have the controlled substance license to do it or the expertise to do it. You can't just order it from a lab in China necessarily. It's, or, or, you know, or India where typically you can buy a lot of, um, chemicals for things. Um, but they, they they recognized that there was a need. Um, I think it's uh, probably meet or exceeded expectations of what the yeah. demand was in terms of our market predictions um, as a company. But the uh, yeah, the need is there, and the need is is still there. Yeah, it's, uh, 
And it's yeah. growing, right? You were telling me something yesterday about uh, these aggregate production quotas. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of talk a little bit about that? Like what an aggregate production quota is and how you've mm -hmm. seen those change sort of over the last, like from year to year? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously we're a Canadian company and your your production limits are set by your dealer's license that Health Canada authorizes. They're the ones who you apply to them and they tell you what you can or cannot produce. Um, they tell you who you can and cannot sell to. They tell you, they control everything, which is their, their job. Um, and but you can apply and get your limits increased as the demand goes. Um, but in the in the United States, now I may be wrong in this. So if there's uh, regulatory people that want to write in and tell me, approximately correct, tell me I'm, I'm sure. wrong. Approximately correct. Yeah. But based on the research that I've done, aka Google, um, <laughs> the the aggregate production quota. So this is talking about the United States. Yeah. And so the DEA sets aggregate production quota limits um, on Schedule 1 substances in the United States. And from what I read, that was, um, like I said, I just, it's Google, so it may or may not be true. Yeah. Um, but it was to kind of control the production of opiates in terms of the, right. the opiate epidemic. And, and so, of course, being a Schedule 1 drug, everything else is Schedule 1 got lumped into these quotas. So every year, the FD, or sorry, the DEA sets a production limit. That means how much can be produced in the United States. And I believe importing as well. I may be wrong. We'll have to fact check that. Yeah. Um, but the, basically that's for the entire country. And so the limits, for example, I believe were. I actually pulled it up on my phone right here okay. so I can tell you. Yeah. So, and again, like you said, these are the limits that the US, the, the DEA is basically saying, this is how much we want to produce in the country for years. So in 2021, they wanted 50 grams, I guess, 50 grams of MDMA. Uh -huh. And in 2022, the proposal is 3,200. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty big increase. Yeah, there's yeah. some increases across the board with all the substances. I mean, but psilocybin, which is the biggest demand, is I think only 1,500 for 2021. Yeah. So and it's going, it's going to double in 2022. Yeah, going from 1,500 to 3,000. Yeah. Yeah. But that's for everyone. So this, not one company can make that. That's for all the companies get a piece of that 3,000 grams. Right. But this yeah. is a sign that like there is increased demand because the, the DEA sets this based off of sort of like requests from the companies, right? Yeah, like people sort of like lobby so. and say, Hey, we need more. Um, and so the fact that these are increasing, I guess is like a sign of the times. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, I don't know if you can share any of this, but I'm curious, you, you guys manufacture, I think you said like eight different molecules. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of changes in trends around like what's in demand? Like I'm sure at the beginning it was probably more just like MDMA and you know, that sort of standard stuff. Is there anything like interesting that people are starting to request now? Actually, it's, it's different or is it? I mean, MAPS has kind of the, the, the monopoly on the MDMA. So okay. there isn't actually, I mean, there is demand for MDMA um, from other groups, um, but the it's overwhelming majority of the interest is in psilocybin. Okay. Um, and so, but then there's, um, I would say there's a significant increased demand in 5-MeO-DMT. Yeah. Um, and we have some interest increasing in Ibogaine. So, <clears throat> yeah, there's, uh, you know, LSD will, I'm sure, be coming up soon. I mean, Cygen's interested in in working um, to develop our own clinical trial process with an LSD product. Really? Okay, yeah. so yeah. interesting. So mm -hmm. starting the vertical integration process, not just being a manufacturer, but being a drug developer as well. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. like, that's kind of a, like, it's a, it's a side part of Cygen. Our primary focus is to manufacture API, yeah. but our company as a whole has a deep interest in LSD and we feel like there's an opportunity there um, yeah. to, to develop, um, you know, a clinical trial based around that. So you were talking about um, like Ibogaine, right? There's starting to be more demand for Ibogaine. Mm -hmm. um, Ibogaine comes from a tree, right? The aboga root or whatever. Mm -hmm. Why would someone go to you and get the synthetic Ibogaine versus getting mm -hmm. the root and grinding it up or whatever? Yeah. What's sort of the difference there? Okay, so I'm like not a sciencey person yeah. <laughs> brain-wise, so I'm not a chemist um, and I may totally hack this up, but basically I believe it's a, it's a synthetic hybrid or a semi-synthetic. It, it does come from a plant, I think, and I may get this, I think it's Wakangi, I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, and it is uh, a much easier precursor to obtain, it's more sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Iboga grows in areas, uh, first of all, it's my understanding, it takes many, many years to even mature. 
and it also grows in areas that are typically already overexploited. So, um, if how did how does that look? <laughs> yeah. Know? So okay, because yeah. yeah, sometimes like the um the the plant medicine purists, I guess let's call them. You know, mm-hmm. they they have this idea that they're like we don't want any synthetic things, right? We we totally. just want the natural plant. But if you imagine that in like five to ten years, there's you know like ten x the demand that there is now. Mm-hmm there may not be enough naturally growing iboga trees. And in, in order to harvest the ones that are there, we might, you know, potentially endanger them. So this is like an environmental thing in a way, right? Like the synthesis yeah. is potentially like good for the environment. It like helps with sustainability. And uh, is, that, is that sort of the story? Yeah. Kind of? yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a side. I, I actually am very neutral about natural or synthetic. Mm -hmm. I honestly think there's a place for, there's a place for both of them. Sure. Um, But the, you know, for example, um, mescaline, synthetic mescaline protects peyote. Peyote is not for us. That plant is for the indigenous populations. That's their medicine. Those things take like 20 years to grow, right? And it's like a tiny, it's like one dose. Yeah. That's not, that's that's their medicine. Those are that's their plants. It's not mine right. as a as a white person. I'm not I don't feel entitled to it uh-huh. and I know that an industry will go in and, and just destroy it. And as well, we do it all the time <laughs> in our colonialist culture. Um, but the 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 synthetic protects indigenous plants. Mm-hmm. It allows the medicine to be used for the people who meant to have it and, and then it also allows it to be shared potentially with the rest of the world in a safe and sustainable way. And then, you know, 5-MeO DMT, obviously, I, I know no toads are harmed. However, sure. <laughs> apparently, I don't know actually the process. I So I don't know, maybe you know more about that than I do. But, you know, anytime when you're, um, you know, handling plants and animals, um, if we can protect things that need to be protected, we should. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But then on the other hand, you have... The, the biggest demand I think you mentioned was for psilocybin, right? Mm-hmm. And like the psilocybin mushrooms, they grow everywhere and it's like super easy to grow them. Totally. So, so in that case, like why go for the synthetic rather than just like the mushroom? Is it because of purity? Is it because the regulators require you to use something that is like, you know, very consistent? Um, mm-hmm. What's sort of the reason? Well, I mean, you kind of just answered that. Like the 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 regulatory or the regulatory pathway through clinical trial um, needs consistency and reproducibility, and um, it you know the synthetic API can be reproduced identically again and again, um, and so. Uh, typically regulators are more favorable to conditions like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not to be said that extracts or mushrooms can't find a way into that pathway. And I believe there was just recently a clinical trial that was granted for mushrooms. Yes, naturally and sourced. S- totally. And I, like I said, I think there's a place for both of them. Um, right now, I think, you know, the demand for for-profit drug development companies, they're typically seeking synthetic material at this time. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. What uh, going back to the uh, point of view of the plant medicine purists, mm-hmm. they they have this idea of this thing called the entourage effect, where it's like it's mm-hmm. not just that there's psilocybin, there's like other stuff in the mushrooms that you know make it special, yeah. and that you lose something if you go synthetic. Is there? Are you aware of like any evidence, or do you have any thoughts on like if this is real or not? I know it's sort of like a matter of debate. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably don't know enough about it, but I do know I have uh, kind of a scientific mind and that if evidence shows me something different, I will change my mind. Yeah. You know, I think I have evidence-based thinking, I guess sure. you could say. Um, and so I would love to see um, some comparison studies and to actually yeah. let's start, like, let's settle this debate and, and what comes out of it. I will, you know, that's what we're all right. here for. <laughs> and, if it, and if it does turn out that some of these other compounds in the mushrooms do mm-hmm. make a difference, there's no reason that those could not also be synthesized and combined with the synthetic psilocybin. Potentially. Right? So then you have like synthetic entourage effect, yeah. probably. Potentially, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's a that's a that's a lot of compounds. I'm Well, I don't know if the, that's the, like the commercially two, feasible, sure. but I mean, who knows? <laughs> we yeah. didn't think we'd be here today, so we did not. Um, but the. I just think there's, we have to remember that the end result of this is patient choice. Um, And some patients are more comfortable in the natural medicine. They see naturopaths, they prefer naturopathic medicines. Um, And there's some people who um, are more comfortable with Western medicine and prescription drugs from their pharmacy. And that's what they're comfortable with. 
um, they don't want to smoke weed. They take Navalone or whatever, you know, there's like, there's options. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's, um, I think we have to remember that, that it'll give patients hopefully an options in the end. They can pick one or the other. For sure. Um, And there are a lot of different options, lots of different use cases. Is there any particular use case for psychedelics that excites you most? Yeah. You know, like, is there any one that you're like, man, I really hope someone does this study or maybe there's a study already out there that you're really excited about. Yeah. Or are you just mostly interested Um, in uh, the manufacturing side of things? No. Okay. So there's one group and I'm not being paid to plug this whatsoever. Um, They're called Algernon and they're doing work with DMT. And uh, I have read, I think they released something recently about their, um, they're doing work for stroke patients, I believe, mm. um, because of the neuroprotective qualities of of um, DMT. And I don't know how it's going to look at the end. I actually know nothing about it beyond what you could Google yeah. in a press release. This is something I've read. Um, and I just find it so fascinating because stroke patients working in as a first responder in EMS, um, those are such time critical patients and the destruction that happens in the like lifelong deficits that a lot of stroke patients have. Um, and if there's an opportunity here for a drug that can protect the brain, um, whether it's head injuries or, you know, most of my work as a critical care paramedic is protecting people's heads, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so the, the fact, because we don't have, there's not much we can do right now, to be honest. For stroke. For strokes, yeah. for head trauma, for like, there's always new technologies coming out, yeah. but it's still kind of like, um, it's almost like still exploring space. Like they don't understand a lot of it, how brains heal, how brains swell, what happens to the neurons? Why do they heal? Why do they not heal? Mm. Why do some heal and some don't? Like there's so many answers or sorry, unanswered questions. So, but I just like to think of, okay, these are things that maybe one day is something that paramedics will be participating in to yeah. give to patients early on. Like I know nothing about their sure. studies. So sorry, sure. Algernon, cause That's I don't okay. know your protocol or what you're doing, but it just seems very exciting. And I think their um, animal studies or preclinical work is really um, showing some interesting results. So that kind of, that's really me. cool. Yeah. I, um, I was reading about this not too long ago. Um, and it's like, there's one drug, I think it's called like Altapace or Altaplace or something. And that's like mm-hmm. basically the only drug that's out there for <clears throat> protecting, you know, the brain during like ischemic stroke. Mm-hmm. And it basically, there's like a lot of debate about whether it even does much, you know, if it's, it basically has to be administered within like three hours of the stroke. And if it's like beyond that, I think, then uh, yeah, you're something probably like referring that. to thrombolytics. So they're basically it. a clot, it's a clot busting drug. So yeah. you have to give it within a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. So when we hear, we call them hot strokes. Yeah. Um, and we, when we have a hot stroke, we, we move, we move fast and we get yeah. them to the hospital because um, minutes really do count in those mm-hmm. situations. And it could be the difference from, being able to sit up and feed yourself. You may still have, you know, stroke, even with thrombolytics, you may still have deficits, but will you recover from them with Mm -hmm. physiotherapy and so on? Or are you going to need someone to feed you for the rest of your life? You know, that even being able to sit up and feed yourself is a huge difference. Maybe you can't walk, but at least you can feed yourself. And that's the difference between needing like 24 hour care in your home or being independent. Um, Even if you have deficits, it's about minimizing them as much as possible. Yeah, I wonder if that... DMT study that you're referring to requires the DMT to be administered like within a certain window of the stroke, like a, a short window, or if it's yeah. just like at any time after. Yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, I don't know enough about it. Maybe we'll need to get the guys on yeah, your podcast. I think it's a really, I mean, that's just for me. Like, and then obviously, I'm super fascinated by what Wasana is doing with their um, the head injuries, mm-hmm. um, because you know I had an opportunity actually at one of the opening events at the conference here. There was some. Um, you know, there's some pro athletes that are retired now that were there that I had a chance to talk to. And um, just their stories were so um, moving, like yeah. how these sports like, yeah, you know, we this is our entertainment and everyone loves it. But there's also a human factor. There's a human side to it. And, um, you know, NFL players taking hit after hit after hit. I mean, it's yeah. it's yeah, they're they're suffering. Yeah, suffering for our entertainment. So <laughs> I'm, I am glad you brought up the stroke thing and, and the mm-hmm. TBI stuff, because I think that um, oftentimes like the mental health angle, depression, anxiety, PTSD, that's like the thing that everyone focuses on. Mm-hmm. 
I, I mean, I'm excited about that as well, but like, I think some of the more interesting applications are things that are not, I mean, I guess in some technical sense, like stroke is mental health. It's like brain health, right? But it's not what we think of when we say mental health. Yeah. Um, same thing with TBI. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, these like other medical use cases for these drugs, I, it seems like there's probably a whole universe of like unexplored possibilities for what these things could do, which, yeah. is, which is pretty cool. And I mean, and then there's just the, the neurotypicals, just the cognitive enhancing, just the make your life better, prevent things from happening. Um, you know, everyone knows anecdotally a lot of people who are healthy microdose for yeah. performance or cognition or, per, you know, creativity or just to improve their life. They're not trying to heal from a mental illness. They're just right. trying to make their life better in a world that's pretty dark uh -huh, lately. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yeah. You, uh, you're pretty healthy. Do you microdose? I have in the past. Yeah. Yeah. What was your experience with that? Um, for me, so I have um, ADHD, adult ADHD. So I um, I found it quite helpful. Um, but funny enough, I'm so ADHD that I would forget to do my protocol. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd get off, I get off sync and then my brain goes, no, nah, you just give up. You, you got, you know, you, you missed your day three or whatever it was because you take it every three days. And um, But I found it quite helpful. Um, it's, you know, I, I kind of use a mixture of things to help support mm -hmm. my own health. A lot of it has to revolves around fitness and, and diet and really good sleep. And I think that's for me, my, my best medicine. <laughs> yeah. Sleep, something we've been lacking the last, I couple, know I, <laughs> I just said that in my head. I'm like, you're a liar, Nadia. <laughs> we're you just like we're terrible to yourself two hours for four of sleep days during this podcast. Yeah, I know these last uh, four days, I can't say I've been Same. promoting fitness <laughs> and health. <laughs> no, it's brutal. All right. So back, I, I, I looked at my notes and I feel like mm -hmm. we touched on most of the things that we wanted to touch on. I mean, what, what's the future of SciGen? What's like the next five years look like? What, what's, what's up next that you can sort of tell us about if there is anything? Um, you know, we're just getting to the completion of the construction of our facility. Mm -hmm. So I think 2022 is going to be a really big year for us. Um, and then just really start producing our material. Um, I have... Um, a lot of interest in it. So is there production happening now or do you have to, are you waiting till the... So there was a, um, we had a, a kind of a, a pilot project with a third party um, licensed dealer and manufacturer who did make material for, you know, research and development. Um, and that was made available to some researchers and so on. But the, yeah, our main, you know, focus is once we're licensed and we're able to start um, hopefully distributing this material to groups that are waiting. And there's yeah. a lot that are waiting right now. A big waiting list, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just we're, you know, there's not too many in the space doing what we're doing. Um, a lot of other manufacturers are um, either tied up in exclusivity agreements with one company. So you can't buy that drug from them. Um, that's actually a big focus of SciGen is we want to work on a non-exclusive basis. We're not going to lock anyone out. Yeah. Um, you know, if you obviously, you know, ethical and you have to be licensed and this is not, we don't distribute onto a market that's not licensed all of our recipients. Of um, they have to, you know, DEA license import export permits with health Canada and the regulators. Um, but the, you know, there's a big, yeah, people are waiting right now. Yeah. One question that I forgot to ask was, let's say, you know, there, at some point there will be many manufacturers. Why would someone pick like SciGen? Is, is like the psilocybin that SciGen produces different than maybe the psilocybin that someone else produces? Are, are there, is there like some kind of secret sauce that goes <laughs> into the production or is it just kind of whoever gets there and builds the facility first and, you know, locks up all the customers? Like what's sort of the, the IP and the, yeah, the juice? You know? <clears throat> so we, I think, yes, certainly. If you build it, we get, it, we get there first. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we are, we, we think we are the first dedicated psychedelic manufacturing facility. There are, like I said, other psychedelic manufacturers, but they do other pharma as well. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so the infrastructure and, um, you know, I, I like to think that um, customers in the space have a passion for this and they also want, you know, to support the industry as a whole. And we're trying to be really supportive of everyone in the space um, you know, presence here and, and just, this is all we do. And if that's what you're doing, we're going to be there to support you every step of the way through your clinical trial. Um, I'm not going to disappear as soon as your shipment is received. You know, we make sure we're going to make sure that all of the auditing processes and the, and the, um, CMC packages and all the information you need to get your clinical trial done from your manufacturer will be available to you. And we're, I hate to say it responsive, 
just answer your emails. Like, I think that's the hugest yeah. things I have, um, you know, people reach out to us that are just so surprised that I emailed them back. They're like, we've asked so many places if they can make this material and no one even responds to us. Um, and so, it's, yeah. it's amazing that like, if you, um, respond to your email within 24 hours, you're in like the top 1% of, <laughs> of people. Oh really? I feel like that. Yeah. It's like people always, it happens with me too. People are like, wow, so responsive. Appreciate it. I think um, when I first got into business, like, cause like I said, I came from the first responder world, which is like, I don't, I have to respond immediately. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so my world moves in seconds and minutes and very, very quickly. And um, my brain functions at a very fast pace, which is what I've done for 17 years um, working as, you know, a paramedic. It makes sense. Um, but so I've actually, part of my process of learning um, in this space and really finding my niche as, as a, essentially a psychedelic salesperson is, is actually that work-life balance and slowing down and also understanding that this, um, and investors I'm sure are told this over and over again, this is a long game. This yeah. is slow. Nothing is moving fast. It just, we're going to plot along and we're going to get there and it has to be safe and it has to be done right. And we can't rush this. Yeah. So I've learned with my emails as well to be a lot more deliberate and like, you know, take yeah. the time to, you know, am I in the space to answer this right now? Sure. It's okay. I don't have to answer it right now. Right. I can wait till tomorrow. But at least you do respond. I do. <laughs> yeah, I do so respond. Sure. Yeah. And if I don't respond, people are like, she didn't respond to me. It <laughs> maybe went to my junk mail and I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of investors, um, when will people be able to buy your stock publicly? Do you know? Do you have any idea when an IPO I might be coming? I don't. No? I don't know. We are still private. Um, I know that they're doing a financing round right now. Um, so yeah, we're, um, we have a really great group of really passionate investors that have invested in SciGen, um, and they believe in us and, um, you know, we are here to support all of, so to other investors, our company is supporting the company, you know, potentially that you're invested in. So yeah. when we're successful, we hope everyone else can be successful. For sure. So. Um, well, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, no that, I don't about, think so. that about covers it. Right, <laughs> That's what cool. no. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. So, um, where can people find you? You know, on the internet, if they want to reach out to you, you know, feel free to like plug your website. I don't know yeah. if, you're, if you're on Twitter, you know, plug that. Um, yeah. So our website is www.sigen.ca, um, and there are. Um, I think I think we're actually launching a new website this week. Nice. Um, and there is a contact form there that goes to my inbox. Oh, actually, I don't know if I want everyone to know that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, you it goes to, to our team's inbox. Um, but the uh, there's contact form and then there's also um, request forms if you want to request research material for us to start the conversation if you're interested, um, if you're doing a clinical trial or you know someone who needs material. Amazing. Well, mm. Nadia, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>